Good morning. Got to stand in the back and <clears throat> watch many of you worship our King this morning and this, this feeling of gratitude and thankfulness to my God that I get to worship with each of you. I know it's easy for us to think of church as no one's really going to miss us if we're not here. It's not a big deal. I can kind of go if I feel like it, if, you know, the clothes are, are washed and, you know, there's no traffic on the way to church. And I, we have these excuses and reasons that we do or don't go. But I just want to thank you. Getting to worship with you once a week and getting to spend time with many of you throughout the week, it is such an honor and a privilege. And I say this because we're jumping into the series that's going to wreck some of us. I believe that when we open the Word of God, it has the opportunity to change us, and I believe that with all of my heart that today the Word of God can change us. I believe that every page, every passage, every verse, everything in the Word of God points to one thing, that we're in need of a Savior, and his name's Jesus. And so I'm thankful today to get to worship with you, some that have just started to come to the church because they were invited by a friend or they walked past or they saw us online or something to that effect. Maybe it's you're worshiping with us this morning because you were just born. We have two babies up in here. Maybe you're worshiping with us because you've been here a very long time and you've seen God just doing a work in his people. And so it's, it's for whatever reason that you're here, I want you to know that it matters that you're here because the word of God can change us as we study it corporately and together. We're beginning this new series called The Great Exchange. The Great Exchange is this theological term that, that many people have uh, used. It's, it, it basically applies to the term propitiation. Have you used that word today or this week? Propitiation? It's this term that is the idea that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves, and he gave us his right standing before God, those who would trust and obey and repent and, and make Jesus Lord of our lives. And while you and I were still sinners, Christ died in our place. And we're doing this series over the next many weeks through Isaiah 53 in particular because we need to be reminded in this season what the reason is. We believe it's Jesus. And it's so great that as we open the Old Testament, that's the left side of many of our Bibles, known as the Hebrew Scriptures, the dusty part, if some of us are honest, we can be reminded that Jesus is in all of the Scripture. It's all pointing to the need that we have for a Savior. Jesus giving of himself may be the thing, when it comes to the gospel, the emphasis that matters the most to me, because I'm reminded of how messed up I am and how... of in need I am of a savior. And so we all emphasize a certain thing when it comes to the gospel, some the cross, some the resurrection, some the kingdom of God. But this idea of the great exchange, that he'd stand in the gap and get what we deserve and we get what he deserves. There's nothing in the gospel I think that gives me more excitement, but also more sorrow. Because when you start to think through what we celebrate on Good Friday, that Jesus went to a cross for yours and my sin, it breaks my heart sometimes to think that he'd have to go to the cross. When we read the text, I'm just kind of hoping it's been changed. No, Lord, don't go to the cross. You don't deserve to go to the cross. But then I'm reminded why he did, and it was because of you and me. And I'm so grateful that he has. 
I'm so grateful that he'd go and take on, pay for the debt that I incurred through my sin and that he'd defeat death. My God didn't stay in the grave, church. This past, uh, about a week and a half ago, uh, we moved. And many of you helped with this move, and it was such a blessing and such an encouragement. I was so grateful for the fact that many of you were like, hey, I want to come help. And some of you were out of town. It's totally okay. We had plenty of people. John did most of it. It was fantastic. But we met this neighbor next door. If he starts listening to my sermons, this is going to be awkward. So he's got a really nice truck. I already told him that. Makes my truck look small. And he's got, uh, he's got two boats. <laughs> this isn't what makes him great. <laughs> but it's that he's a believer. He's a son of the God Most High. He's been adopted into the kingdom. He's a great dude. Him and his wife and their kids, they're just, they're a great family. So excited to live next door to them. And we were talking, he was asking me about Church of the Valley, and he was like, tell me about Church of the Valley. And there's so many things I could have said. I could have said, oh, I could, I could tell you about Malik. I can tell you about what's happening in this context. I can tell you about how our staff has grown and we're about to have elders and all these great things are happening. And I could have said we're growing more into the likeness of Jesus. That would be really easy to do. But instead, it felt like God just, I guess, spoke to me in this moment. I said, we as a church want to obey, obey the very words of God for the right reasons. That's why we exist. We want to obey the very words of God for the right reasons. And as we talked about this, he, he had never heard something like this before. And I got to explain the gospel more and more to him. And we got to be excited about the fact that there is this community that wants to obey God for the right reasons. And so as we study the, this chapter of Isaiah, chapter 53, as we study this and we look at 700 years before Jesus was born to Mary that Isaiah prophesied, he talked about what the coming suffering servant would do for mankind. We can get excited because he obeyed for the right reasons. As we come to this Advent season, this time of remembering of Advent, the most important person of all time who stepped out of the glory of heaven, put on, clothed himself with flesh, and walked amongst his creation. My hope is that over the next few weeks, you and I will have a greater understanding, greater appreciation, a greater devotion and love for the one who came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. One thing that is clear throughout the Gospels and this chapter, Isaiah 53, is actually known to some theologians as the fifth gospel, it's nicknamed that, is this, that God does not give us all that we want, he gives us what we need. You've heard me say that before, usually I'm a little more antagonistic, God doesn't give us all that we want, lest we become spoiled brats, but he gives us what we need. But once we start to love and trust and obey Christ, you know what happens? Your wants, your desires, they change. Because ultimately, God gives us of himself, which is what we need. But when we receive him, it turns out that that's what we ultimately wanted also. We are fixated on ourselves. If we are focused on getting what we want from God, we have bought into a lie that this life, this Bible, this church, and the Christian faith are all about us. We act as if God is lucky to have those of us who profess Christ as king. We might not ever say it out loud, but our actions seem to preach what the reformer Martin Luther once called the theology of glory. 
Here's what the theology of glory is. It was to create a picture of God which reflected humanity's expectation of what God should be like. You ever been there? You ever think, well, God would never do such and such, and yet you read in Scripture that he did. The most obvious example of this is that most people in or even outside of the church expect God to reward those who do good things. You might be like, no, I never think that way. Yes, you do. Some assume that what they do when it's good is what justifies them. And if you have heard any of us preach at Church of the Valley, you've heard time and time and time again that it is not our works that justify us before a holy and perfect God, but it is the finished work of Christ dying in our place and rising from the dead and us receiving this by faith that justifies us. But even others who are in the church, those who are God-fearing people, those who know and love Jesus, they're faithful in individuals. They may even point people to Christ. They start to assume that because of their good, assumed good works, that God owes them something. A life of ease, a lack of suffering, and a blessing in a worldly sense. This wrong thinking is what propagates bad theology. An understanding of who God is and what he is like, hear me, our merit, our good works, does not satisfy the law in which God gave us. So Martin Luther talks about the theology of glory, where you start to make God in your own image. But he also taught the theology of the cross. This is a person who sees God for who he really is because their understanding of him comes from the revelation in which God gave his creation known as his word. Not built on human expectations, but built on God's perfect work through the cross of Christ. My hope this morning is that for the next few weeks that as we enter into this season together, we're constantly remembering the reason for the season which is God clothed himself in humanity and perfectly paid our debt and offered an invitation to the whole world that if you repent and you believe and submit and obey and identify yourself with Christ, you can and will be transformed by the one true God. This is good news. All of us have had moments in our lives where anticipation is built up. Anyone anticipating anything? <laughs> okay. We live in a world where anticipation is the catalyst for much of what we do. And for the Christmas season, we may be anticipating presents. Let's be honest. My Elfster's full of stuff. Maybe we're anticipating the time with family. Maybe we're anticipating traditions that we've done for years. And for some, the anticipation towards the Christmas season is more of fear. It's more of memories of past times that seemed far more happy than we are now. Let's be real, it's a depressing time for some. Anticipation, good or bad, is something that we have learned to live with and live through. For the nation of Israel, they had been taught that a king would come one day and who would restore Israel. But as Israel awaited this king with anticipation, they, like many of us, started to paint a picture of a king of their own desires, one who would fight and, and beat armies, one who would destroy other kingdoms and raise Israel's government and people above other nations. It's going to feel a little bit like a history lesson, but it's important that we understand this to understand the context in which Isaiah is speaking. 
Today we're going to go do most of our study in Isaiah 52. And if you're taking notes, here's what Isaiah means. The Lord is salvation, is what the name means. Isaiah was the son of Amos. He ministered in and around Jerusalem as a prophet to Judah during the reigns of four different kings of Judah. And don't judge me when I pronounce them wrong. First, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Mike said I did it right, so we're good. Isaiah is quoted directly in the New Testament. The book of Isaiah is quoted directly in the New Testament over 65 times. Far more than any other Old Testament prophet and mentioned by name over 20 times. Isaiah was born around 740 B.C. and he lived till about 681 B.C. Where tradition has it that Isaiah was sawed in two. Isaiah had many what would consider a very fruitless ministry of exhortation and warning of people in his time. Isaiah prophesied during the period of the divided kingdom, directing most of his message to the southern kingdom of Judah, and he condemned the empty ritualism of his day and the idolatry into which so many of the people had fallen. Sound familiar? He foresaw the coming Babylonian captivity of Judah because of their departure from the Lord. See, God would reign and rule in Israel and ultimately over the entire world, but here's the key, through a righteous king. Through a righteous king who was the son of David, and this king would deliver Israel from its enemies, this king would deliver Israel from its sins, and there was this promise of this righteous king who would come and bring salvation and deliverance for Israel and through Israel for the entire world. Because of that, the hopes of the Jews had been pretty high. They wanted that king. They expected that king. They believed what God had said about that king, and they chose a king by the name of Saul. Wah, wah, wah. They put their hope in Saul, and maybe they actually assumed that Saul would be the king who would come and bring salvation and make Israel the top nation over all nations in the world and reign from Israel over the whole world and bring a kingdom of righteousness and peace. But if you've read the Old Testament, if you know about Saul, you know he didn't do that well. Saul, however, he was rejected. He was rejected by God for his overreaching and overstepping his responsibilities and bounds. He was a sinful man, and not only was he rejected, but his line was cut off from ever reigning again in Israel. Ooh. Hopes then shifted to David. <laughs> now, some of us know David as the shepherd boy that knocked out Goliath, and it gets worse if you read on. <laughs> anyway, but, and he did some amazing things as king, but if you really know who David was, he was a varsity sinner. Ain't no JV, all right? Varsity sinner. And these hopes shifted to David, but David was such a sinful man that God didn't even allow David to be the one who built the temple to house God's presence. David had his issues and was sinful, but he wasn't going to be the righteous king that the Jews had hoped for and expected. But the promise came in 2 Samuel 7 that it would be a son of David, and hopes must have set immediately on who? Solomon, David's son. And it must have started to look pretty good for Solomon, right? Because Solomon came along and he enlarged the kingdom vastly. And he became the wealthiest person in the world by a large margin. 
Solomon asked the Lord for wisdom, and God gave him an abundance of wisdom, and so he was able to be successful in everything he did in a human sense. But it turned out that Solomon, even though he was a winner via the world standards, was spiritually bankrupt. Solomon had his heart turned away from God because he married so many wives and had so many concubines, and as a man who's married to one, I have no idea how you would possibly be married to lots. And he was engaging himself in, a, in physical relationships, not sparing any pleasure that this world would offer. He was very depraved. He was not going to be the righteous king. And by the time you come to the end of his kingdom, the whole kingdom splits in pieces. And the northern kingdom is wretched and it's corrupt and wicked. And there's not one good king. And the southern kingdom struggles to survive with its own long list of corrupt kings. And people were beginning to lose hope in a human king, which makes so much sense, even from the lineage of David. In fact, the line of David was so bad that at one point, David's descendants, by the name of Manasseh, became king. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 9, Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, it says, to do more evil than the nations who the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. The son of David led Israel to do more evil than the Canaanites. And the Canaanites were as vile and bad as it gets. So all the kings in the north were corrupt. Virtually all the kings in the south were corrupt, with a few exceptions. They all failed to fulfill the responsibilities of being a righteous king. This is what Isaiah is coming into. They're all failures at one degree or another. No human king seemed to be capable to fulfill this anticipated promise. In fact, Isaiah's life comes to an end during the reign of Manasseh, when Manasseh has Isaiah sawn in half with a wooden saw. That was the Isaiah we're about to read about today. And that is the context in which the suffering servant is being described and is being prophesied about. It had gotten so bad, and yet Isaiah comes with good news of the Savior who would enter into the fray. Sometimes I feel like we're in a similar place. Some society seems to care less and less about truth. It's more about the feels and what's politically correct. Yes, I said it. And here was the news. Here was the shocking news, church. He would not only be a reigning king, Isaiah would talk about, he would be a suffering servant. And his glory would not come until he had suffered. He would suffer, he would not suffer for any of his own evil that he had done because he would be a righteous king, but he would suffer for the evil that others had done. He would suffer vicariously for us. The righteous king would suffer. The righteous king would die, but he would not die for his own sin. He would die for the sins of his people. He would die in paying the penalty for the sins of his people. He would be a substitute who died in his people's place. So that's where we come. Isaiah chapter 7 is where we're going to start. God told Isaiah to go to Ahaz, son of Jotham, one of the kings, who was the current king, and Israel and Syria had attempted to invade Judah, but had not succeeded yet. This threat to Judah's security brought great fear to the king and the people of Judah, and Isaiah's message to Ahaz is one of reassurance. Does anyone need any reassurance today? That even though these two invading kings were coming, they would not prevail. 
And then Isaiah offers a sign from the Lord that would far outlast Ahaz and his reign as king. And here we go, Isaiah 7. Many of us know this, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. Isaiah foretells of a child who would be born, who would be born of a virgin. The son would make his appearance under special circumstances and would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Ahaz was being reminded and encouraged in his faith that the Lord would provide a sign to remind him of the fact that he was trusting the one true God, no matter what. And that God would show up, he would show off, and he would provide a sign. Often, we in the Christian faith ask God to show up. We ask for a sign. We just want him to show himself. We ask God to provide a circumstance or a word or an expression of his faithfulness. And when we receive it, if we notice it, we quickly forget it, disregard it, or ignore it. I know more than enough spiritual people that use experience as a Ouija board and attempt to get the Bible to justify how they feel. Feelings dictate what we think when we hear from God, and unfortunately, they will often supersede his word and what he actually says. God would provide the sign. One that would not just be a reminder, but would be a savior, church. God would clothe himself in skin and walk among us, being born of a virgin in humble beginnings, and Emmanuel is the one of the many names we give the Savior, that God is with us. He isn't distant. He isn't far off. Our God is accessible. He's affordable. And he is available because he is with us. Isaiah elaborates further on Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It starts with the government will be on his shoulders. The word for shoulders used here is one that signifies that of a burden. The government would be on his shoulders. The king would reign above everything. As God, our Lord, governed all things from the beginning, as man, he sets up the kingdom of God. He sets up his kingdom, which he still governs upon the earth today. The kingdom of God being available is the good news because without the son's sacrifice, we have no access to a holy and perfect God. It says he will be called this is not a list of God's titles, but his character. These are the Messiah's characteristics, what he would do and what he would be like. So he calls him a wonderful counselor. Wondrous counsel is another way to translate it. The son would have supernatural wisdom as he led and built his kingdom here on earth. The son would produce wonder in those who he met, saw, or heard of him. Mighty God. For those who live in current age and post-life, which I assume is all of you, the death and resurrection of the Son that we see in this passage to mean that Jesus, the suffering servant, is the one true God. But for the Jews in the 700 BC, this pointed them to the direction of a warrior king. One who was more like Thor or Zeus in their understanding who would win battles through might. The nation of Israel had looked for their king to be a fighter, 
Isn't that us today? And through force to topple other nations. But this wonderful counselor, mighty God, would not be what they expected. Continued and said, everlasting father, this Messiah will be a father over all his people eternally. He, like a father, will be over them and discipline them. And then it says, Prince of Peace, this would be the king who would bring peace eternally. He would allow you and I who are not reconciled to God without Jesus' work, and he would bring peace to us. But all of those of us who are at war with God would have peace with God because of Jesus' work. And many continue to want a king who would rule and bend others into submission. The Messiah comes and submits to the Father who ultimately brings peace once and for all for the end of time. This son to be born, this future Messiah that we are going to talk through all of December, this anointed one, the Christ, is a king that not one person in history past or in the future would have ever described or thought of. Our human nature is to create a savior who wins by might and muscle, not one who wins by submission and obedience. I want us to all know that the birth, the life, the work, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of the Christ were important, vital, supernatural, redeeming for those of us who would trust the Lord God Almighty. All of that work is so important. So now that we've seen the foreshadowing of this king who would reign, I think it's very important that we all see what this Christ actually did. So since we're going to be studying Isaiah 53, context is king. So turn with me to Isaiah 52, as Aaron read, 13 through 15. All of that was the setup. You ready? <laughs> Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. Most people wish that it was in 53. And it is a summary of what we will read in chapter 53. He starts and he says that this servant of the Lord will act wisely, which means he will complete his mission. That's what it means to act wisely. Too often we look towards the Lord as an example to be imitated and not a Lord to be followed. And if we are sons and daughters of the God Most High, if we've repented and trusted Jesus, we have a mission if we're following Jesus. We, like him, need to complete that mission. See, Church of the Valley exists to grow more in the likeness of Jesus, but it also exists to make disciple makers who make disciple makers of all nations and generations. The men and women would start to understand that it's not just about coming to church. It's not just about praying a prayer. It's not just about doing good and not letting people see the bad. But it's about actually coming to Christ with a humble heart knowing that he did for you what you could not do for yourself. And because of that, you can't not shut up about him. To complete the mission of gospelizing and discipling this world for the glory of his name is why we gather to prepare and enrich and to encourage you through his word to go out there and make disciples. I want you to notice, I want you to notice that the servant of the Lord was not a success because of his knowledge. He was not a success because of his miracles. He wasn't even a success because he was a good person and he was the best. He was a perfect sacrifice, but the son was a success because every moment of his life he obeyed the father's will and did not veer from the mission, which was to live a life that not one person born into Adam's sin ever could. He who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might have the righteousness of God. 
that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And because of this perfect obedience, this perfect submission to the Father's will, he gained access for us who could never achieve or earn this on our own. And because of his work, we read verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will obey. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. This suffering servant was raised up. He was highly exalted, not because he willed it, but because God's will was obeyed, church. Obedience is not popular. Can we be honest about this? We like the hat with the word, but we don't like to do it. 2018, Bay Area, California, America, obedience is not a sexy thing. Let's be real about this. And we say things like, you're not the boss of me. That was like in the song of Malcolm in the Middle. Anyone? Okay, thank you. And we think that obedience and submission to anything or anyone is old-fashioned. And it strips us of our rights. But the Messiah, the Christ, he paid the price that you and I wouldn't pay. So that each person who would identify with the servant on the outside through confession, who has, isn't going to argue semantics about being baptized and would identify themselves on the inside by active obedience for the right reasons and doing what the Lord has commanded us to do, we are identified with Christ. Or to say it another way, we find our identity in Christ. Those of us who know Jesus are not afraid to obey him. Paul writes to the church in Philippi in chapter 2, verse 8, and nine in Philippians, and he's talking about Jesus. It's this hymn that he's writing, and he says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? What was just said? God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. You know why we get excited when we're singing songs about the victorious king? Because we're with him. Paul writes in Philippians what Christ did accomplish by being obedient. He was highly exalted through what? Through his humiliation. This does not sound like what Israel was expecting at all. And after the humbling of the incarnation, Jesus, where he took on skin and walked among us, Jesus further humbled himself because he did not demand normal human rights. Yeah, my God wasn't arguing about this and that. He did not demand the normal human rights, but subjected himself to persecution and suffering at the hands of those who did not believe that he was who he said that he was. Beyond even persecution, Jesus went to the lowest point or further extent in his humiliation. He died as a criminal, church, following God's plan for him. Even further humiliation was because Jesus' death was not by ordinary means, but was accomplished by crucifixion. The cruelest and most excruciating, most degrading form of death possible. Jesus not only puts, put others before himself, but was obedient no matter the cost to what God was telling him to do. He had full confidence, full faith in the Father, even if it wasn't comfortable, and even if he'd rather not do it. (laughs) This is the king that we follow, Christians. 
This is the king that God sent for Israel. It doesn't mean it'll be easy. In fact, if you read the text, it says it's going to be hard and impossible without the Holy Spirit. And too many of us simply would rather know God's commands in different languages, in original context, and have all the information possible just to, simp- just to justify ourselves for simply not obeying. So, hear this. Do not confuse information retention and morality for obedience. Picking up what I'm putting down? Do not confuse information retention and morality for obedience. You can do a lot of good and never, ever be in the Lord's will. And now I've just argued with every religion. So I don't want us to miss this, Church of Valley. Look at me. If you're taking notes, stop. Look at me. You being a good person is not at all why Christ came. You being a good person is not why Christ came, lived, died, rose again. He came because each of you, and hear me, I'm telling you this because I love you. He came to, because you're so depraved. You're so sinful like me that he needed to. Because not one of us was going to work our way to him. We were so wicked. We're so enslaved to our sin without him. And many of us don't even know it. We're like, how dare you? It's because you don't know it yet. But you will. And because of that, we think we can never trust our lives to a savior because we start to think we can save ourselves. Verse 14, just as there were many who were appalled at him. The gospel's appalling for those of us who are trying to save themselves. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Who's seen the passion of the Christ? Give me something here. All right, decent amount of you. Some of you haven't seen it. You didn't want to. It's rated R, so you're like, no, right, whatever. The, where he gets the lashings, Jim Caviezel gets the lashings in the movie, it doesn't even do it justice. And that's some of the most disgusting torture I've ever seen in cinema. But it doesn't do it justice to what Jesus endured for you and I. The suffering that the son went through, his willingness to be obedient, even to the point of death, the beating that he endured and the wickedness that men showed by beating him and spitting on him and whipping him to the point of disfiguration, his beating and torture was unlike anything you can imagine unlike anything we're really used to. He was beaten to a pulp because he came and claimed that he was the Messiah that the scriptures testified about. And guess what? He was. Spoiler. The son's appearance was so disfigured. It was so marred by a beating that no one could ever even recognize that he was who he was, let alone if he were even human at that point. And guess what? He wasn't what was expected, and for a lot of people, is not what's desired. The Jewish people believed that they had been made right because of their birthright and because of their merit. And if you believe that your merit, you believe that your works can justify you, the idea of someone else having to justify you is incredibly insulting and offensive. So if you hear nothing else, here's my point. 
The bad news is that you are in need of the gospel. The good news is that the gospel is readily available to a humble heart. That's why the understanding of our depravity, our sinful nature, and the fact that all of us, even once we're included in Christ, still sin. I sinned this morning. I got really angry this morning, if I'm honest. We still sin, and we still sin a lot, and it is imperative to the understanding to why the suffering servant came, not to just be an example, but to be a sacrifice for you and I, because we need him. Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. He will sprinkle many nations. In other translations, it says that he will startle many nations. And the sun produces astonishment in those who would come in contact with him. He is polarizing. He does not allow you to stay where you are. You either have a reaction to him of hate. How dare he? Disgust. Or you crown him as king. And those who ignore him, they really don't know who he is. Kings with all their armies, all their resources, will never make the difference that King Jesus King has and will make. Jesus' influence through obedience wins every time. So don't have pride because of what you've done. If you're going to have any pride, church, because God deemed you worthy, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done to be adopted into his kingdom. Many would say, we'll beat him. He'd take it without ever opening his mouth. We're going to kill you. That's all right. He'll be the perfect sacrifice. We're going to bury your dead body. That's all right. I'll resurrect from the dead. Jesus wins every time. Not the way that you or I would attempt to win. That's the point. Kings shall shut their mouths because of them. Those in the highest ranking for the past 2,000 years have had to do something with Jesus. This poor carpenter from Nazareth who left no written word. Everything you're reading, he didn't write it down. Only had 33 years of life before his death. Who's not 33 yet? Raise your hand. Yeah. Only had 33 years of life before his death. Has acquired more followers than Kim Kardashian. Sorry. That's not, sorry. Sorry. He's acquired more followers and subjects than any other king in history. Could it be because he isn't like any earthly king? Because <laughs> my king, he didn't stay in the grave, church. There is nothing, not even death, that could defeat this king. See, that is my king, the one whose name is above every name. When we sing tremble and we sing Jesus' name over and over, it's because only his name is above all names. And one day, every tongue 
on earth and under the earth will declare that Jesus is Lord. Let me, let me be a little antagonistic. I'm not, I know that's out of my character. You ready? You're either going to bow or you're going to bow. Got it? I'd recommend doing it in this life. I'd recommend submitting to what Christ has done for you as a humble king rather than thinking you can work your way to God. So many people are trying to break into the house of God through a window with, with, with bars on it when Jesus Christ unlocked the door and left it open. We're trying to get to him through means of our own personal work. God doesn't give us all that we want. He gives us what we need. And I use that because I'm going to use a quote that's a modern translation of a, a quote that, that St. Augustine of Hippo said over a thousand years ago. The theologian said it this way. This is modern translation. He said, love God and do as you please. What? But what I just said is not how some heretics describe it. That if you just love God, then you have free reign to act however you want. Augustine's intention in the context in which he wrote was that when you love God, the thing you want most is him. You want his word. You want to obey him because you want him, because he is what pleases you. Nothing in this world will satisfy. So truly following Jesus means that what you truly want is Jesus. Do you hear me? Ever gotten an affirming insult? I'm not talking about like a encouragement, rebuke, encouragement sandwich, but that's what I do. But like an affirming insult, like where they meant to make me feel bad, but they actually made me feel really good. One of the most affirming insults I've ever received is that someone said I talk about Jesus too much. <laughs> and I only seem to preach one message. I guess I'm done. One message. And that's true, I preach one message. Told in a bunch of different ways through the holistic, canonized part of the Bible, all of it, from a bunch of different texts because I believe in the word of God, it tells one story of one thing, that we are in need of a savior and that savior's name is Jesus. I don't know about you, but the more that I read scripture, or really, let's be real, the more the scripture reads me, I come to understand my deficiencies more and more. My utter lack of faith sometimes. My ego that makes me wonder why the God of the Bible, knowing how wicked and faithless I am, would ever save a wretch like me. And then I keep reading. And I keep diving into this. And I keep trying to do what it says. And I understand that God's plan, the way he set it up, was that at a predetermined time, he would remove the veil from my eyes so I could see Jesus and all his glory, and all his power, and all of his obedience, and come to the understanding that God loved me enough to do all that he had done so I could be made right in his sight. I can actively pursue him day in and day out because he is the Lord. He is the king. He is the one who suffered so that I and you then could be redeemed.